Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for this book and what it teaches us uh, about you and about what you hope to see in us. We love you. We thank you for your word and for your spirit who teaches us. Uh, I pray for eyes to see and ears to hear tonight. Please, uh, would your spirit be our teacher and lead us and guide us into all truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Leviticus. The story so far, Genesis got things going. Remember, first things we talked about in the beginning, and we talked about chapter 12 and chapter 15 and chapter 17, humongous chapters. Chapter 12, because that's the promise to Abraham. Chapter 15, because that's the... Yes, the Abrahamic covenant. And chapter 17 is the circumcision, which is the sign of that covenant. We went in from there, we went to Job, and we looked around at a, a guy who was running around at the time of Jacob, and we kind of looked at his life a little bit. We came back to Exodus, and the children of Israel at the end of Genesis had gone down into Egypt, and God had incubated them in Egypt to bring them out as his people to be a nation. What did the nation need? I mean, what do you need to have a nation? You need to have land, and he had promised them. No, no, that's the right answer to another question. Yeah, yeah, ask that question. Yeah, I'll ask that question next, maybe. Okay, so first you need land. If you're going to have a nation, you need land. Well, he had promised them land. So he's taking them to the land. What else do you need, obviously? People. And so he had people that he was taking out of Egypt to go inhabit the land he had given them. The final thing you need is a constitution, and he gave them his law. That's Exodus chapter 20. Good. Exodus chapter 20, the giving of the law. Humongous chapter. Lights and bells going off around Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Big, big, big. Next big chapter is Exodus chapter 40. So last week we looked at 25 through 40, and something incredible happens. They have built the tabernacle, they do the sacrifices, and God comes to tabernacle with his people. God comes and inhabits the tabernacle. God is living with his people now. Now they're not in the land yet. It's going to take them a little while to get to the land. So God is in their midst right now. He is a holy God. They've seen and heard of him from Exodus 19, 20, and a little bit after that. Remember, he's, he's a fire, and there's lots of noise and stuff coming from the mountain, and the people say, we can't take hearing him anymore. Send Moses. Moses, you stand in the gap for us. And so Moses is the mediator between God and men and men and God. And so Moses acts as that representative and brings them the law and helps them understand how they are to live with God. So there's our story up to date. Leviticus now kicks in because there are two key questions that you're going to start asking, which we talked about last week. Oh yeah, the word for Leviticus is holiness. That's what holiness is about. Uh, we're going to find out what holiness is about from God's mind uh, in the book of Leviticus. Oh, gosh. Yeah, basics. Okay. Who wrote it? Moses wrote it. He wrote the whole Pentateuch. He wrote it around 1445 BC. Uh, there seems to be a one-month span where he probably collected all the materials and put it in its final form. Uh, he probably wrote it right there around Mount Sinai. Why? Why did he write it? Because Yahweh is now dwelling among his people in holiness. He provides prescriptions mediated through Moses for the people to remain in relationship with him. A holy God in the midst of sinful people. How are they to live with him? And so in light of Exodus chapter 40, two questions would come to your mind if you are an Israelite. Gosh, I'm not getting this tonight at all. God freed his people that they might follow him in faithful obedience. 
resulting in intimate fellowship and reverential worship. In light of the Suzerain-Vassal Treaty, remember the law is in the form of the Suzerain-Vassal Treaty. The suzerain is the king, the mighty king. The vassal is the servant. God was, the, was and is the mighty king. Israel is his vassal. In light of that covenant that he made with them, how does an Israelite, here's question one, how does an Israelite offer appropriate and pleasing tribute or worship to this holy God? So how do I approach him? Second, how does an Israelite maintain day-to-day fellowship with this holy God? So how do I worship him? And then how do I walk with him? Worship, walk. How do I do this? How do I approach this holy God? Because if I don't approach him correctly, what am I likely to face? Death. So I'm asking this question. God is in the camp. How do I approach this God? Second, God is in the camp. How do I walk with this God? So God graciously says, let me tell you how to do that. And he uses a priesthood, a tabernacle, and sacrifices. We've already talked about the priesthood a little bit. We'll pick up on that again next week. We've talked about the tabernacle a little bit. It'll keep showing up. We're going to look at the sacrifices. And so Leviticus begins telling the, the priests and the people how you approach God and how you live with God. It's what you would want to know if you were living in 1445 B.C. and you look across the camp and you see the cloud or the pillar of fire, you're asking yourself, how do I approach this God and how do I live with this God without dying? I'm telling you, it would be on your mind. So here's Leviticus. This is the big picture, the big overview of Leviticus. 1 to 16, kind of breaks into halves here, 1 to 16 is approaching a holy God. And in 1 through 16, we're going to have the standards for honoring God's holiness in their public worship. 17 through 27, sort of the second half, is living with a holy God, and it's standards for imitating God's holiness in their private walk. So how do I honor his holiness? How do I imitate his holiness? To the point, God's redeemed must honor his holiness in their worship and imitate his holiness in their walk in order to enjoy his ongoing presence and blessing. So he's got 1 through 16 is sort of the way to God, and 17 through 27 is the walk with God, the way and the walk, worship and imitating uh, those two things. How do I approach him and how do I live with him? You read chapters 1 through 7. We'll take the first half, 1 through 16, we'll take it in three chunks. Chunk 1 is tonight, 1 through 7. We're going to talk about the sacrifices. You read the sacrifices. Some of you sent me funny emails about the sacrifices. And you even alliterated with L's. The Lord loves the long lobe of the liver. (laughs) But I was glad you were reading it. Point. What does God want to teach his people through the sacrifices? Is God just wanting these sacrifices? Yes. But does he also want to teach his people then, as well as us, what he's looking for? Yes. Have you ever had, uh, have you ever had an x-ray? I'm sure all of you have. Or uh, what's the other thing that I've had? They made me do a stress test. Have you ever had a stress test? You know what I'm... And they put you on this treadmill. It's horrible. You know, and after about two minutes, you're going, let me off this thing. And they won't let you off, and you're just about to pass out. And they put you on the table, and they put all this goo on you, and they have this little doodad, and it runs over, and they look at your heart, and then they film it. And then the doctor comes in and says, do you see that? And I go, no. (laughs) And he goes, well, that's good, and that's bad, and this is doing this. You're like, whoa. But it takes someone who knows what they're looking at and, and the correct instruments to tell you what's going on inside. And they know what they're looking for on the inside. The sacrifices 
are like an x-ray for God. Or a... What is that? Ultrasound sort of a thing on your heart. Right? So that's what this is. What does God want to teach his people through the sacrifices? He wants to teach them the kind of heart he longs to see within them. Is he happy that they just bring the things and go through the motions? No. Although he's, he's demanded these sacrifices, and as the suzerain, he can demand whatever he wants. And the vassal is supposed to bring it. But he's not just demanding it to demand it. He's demanding it because he's trying to teach them something about their relationship to him. He's trying to teach them the kind of heart he longs to see within them. So we're going to look at these sacrifices in 1 through 7. I'm going to break them up into three big categories and try to walk you through what they're trying to point to and what they're trying to teach us. So the sacrifices, first, sacrifices are nothing new to pre-Israel. Remember, uh, who's the first person you can think of who offered something? Okay, you can, you can think earlier than that. You can say Noah. Okay, you can think of Cain and Abel. So even from the earliest chapters of Genesis... Cain and Abel were supposed to bring offerings, sacrifices to God. Noah was supposed to take seven of the clean animals with him to do all of his sacrifices. Of course, there was Abraham, there was Isaac, there's Jacob. The patriarchs knew about sacrifices. Um, let's see, God told Moses and Israel to bring him sacrifices in the desert. Remember, that's why they were supposed to be leaving Egypt in the first place, was to go worship God in the desert and take him the sacrifices that he had asked for. So sacrifices are nothing new to Israel. What do they do? They maintain and restore fellowship between a holy God and his redeemed people who sin. They maintain and restore fellowship between a holy God and his redeemed people who sin. They're efficacious, meaning they accomplish what God said they would accomplish for those with faith. So some of the sacrifices said, if you do this, God will forgive you. So they accomplished what, they, what God said they would do if they were brought in faith. But they're also didactic. They teach God's people about a true worshiper's heart. Anyone know what this verse from Samuel is off the top of your head? God desires a heart. Okay? Good. If you don't know what that verse is, you should go look it up. There's your assignment. One of your assignments. God wants to teach his people about what he's looking for in their heart. God doesn't look on the outside, does he? He looks on the inside. And he desires obedience more than he desires offerings and sacrifices. What does he desire? Three kinds, three aspects of a worshiper's or a follower's heart. First, a heart that's fully consecrated to him, set apart for him, set apart unto him. Second, a heart that rejoices to have communion with him. And I don't, I'm not talking about uh, the little piece of bread and the little cup. Communion, community with God, and a heart that knows it needs cleansing from him. Three different aspects that God is going to be teaching through the sacrifices. So let's first look at the consecrated heart, because that's the order that it comes out in Leviticus. The first is, let's look at the consecrated heart, the burnt offering. And that shows up in chapter 1 and chapter 6. It was voluntary except for the priests and the feasts. The feasts, you had to do this. The priests were required to bring a burnt offering every morning and every evening. 
It says in chapter 6, basically, there was to be a continual burnt offering on the part of the priests. It was the very best the worshiper had. It made atonement, propitiation. In other words, it took away any enmity between God and the worshiper. Because the worshiper came with a recognition of his or her sinful status and need of acceptance. It expressed the full devotion, commitment, and surrender of a true worshiper's heart. As I've sort of paraphrased it in my own language, as, this, as is this sacrifice, so is my life unto you. So if I brought a burnt offering, it's wholly consumed to the Lord. Lord, as is that sacrifice, wholly consumed and given over to you, so let it be with my life. And the priests were supposed to offer one in the morning and one in the evening. They were supposed to be leading the way in this relationship. On top of that, they could bring a grain offering. It was also voluntary and the very best. It wasn't, and in fact, did you see all these things that said? Uh, you're supposed to bring the choice flower. You can't just bring any kind of flower. You have to bring the choice flower. Uh, no yeast. Why do you think that would be? Because yeast is most often a symbol of sin. Why do you think there's oil mixed in with it? Probably symbolic of the Spirit of God and His ministry. Uh, what else is there supposed to be with it? Salt. Why do you think salt? Okay, what does salt do? It preserves, right? It, it adds, brings life, or at least keeps life there. Honey. Is that interesting? Why do you think honey is not allowed in this? Honey can't stand the heat, okay? Most people think, most commentators would say, honey is the sweetest thing on earth. But the sweetest thing on earth is still unacceptable to the Lord. <laughs> and if you're going to have a symbol of the Lord, while he was fully man, he needed no additional sweetness. His sweetness was 100% divine. He doesn't need any of the sweetness of, you know, whatever from us. And then as was pointed out, all of this had to go on the fire. Pretty interesting, this grain offering. Not offered alone, but on top of a blood sacrifice. So you didn't get to just throw the grain on the altar. It had to go on to a blood sacrifice. And most people think the grain offering was, if, if the burnt offering is a picture of the whole of me caught up and, and consumed in the service of God, the, the uh, grain offering is a dedication of the fruit of my hands. It's a dedication of my service. Another way of saying a dedication of my service to the Lord. From Numbers, this is also the place, we talked about this last time too, this is where the drink offering would go. It's not in Leviticus, but it's also part of these sacrifices. It was also voluntary, not offered alone, but on top of a blood sacrifice. And it was symbolizing a life poured out in devotion to God. So you can see these uh, offerings all rolling together in this idea of consecration and offering the best I have, the best I am to God all the time. Their significance. Did you notice they were all fragrant offerings? In a fragrant offering, God is pleased. Remember, God can only be approached through blood, and only service offered after blood is pleasing to God. What do I mean by that? 
There are people who might think their good works count for something in their relationship to God, even though they are not a follower of Christ. We're taught way back here in Leviticus, this is not the case. The dedication, the good works of my hands, if I am not a follower of Christ, counts for nothing. Because the only way that these offerings are counted, so to speak, is on top of a blood sacrifice. And all of these offerings express unreserved dedication and dependence. Wonderful. There's, we could talk for an hour on the pictures of Christ in these sacrifices, but just a couple of thoughts. First, this, uh, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the drink offering, and then the, uh, let's see, what else do we do? Oh, drink offering, yeah. Grain and drink. Without spot or blemish. It was the best you had. All is given, nothing is held back, like we're told from the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 10. Or in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. A consecrated heart symbolized in these first few sacrifices, these first few offerings, what God is looking for from his people is a consecrated heart evidenced by these offerings that would be brought in faith. So a couple of questions that I ask myself and I ask you. Do I daily? Why daily? That's right, you're New Testament priests. Remember the priests in the Old Testament? Morning and evening. Morning and evening. To symbolize their devotion and dedication, their consecration to the Lord. Do I daily offer God my very best, or do I just offer him my leftovers? And do I daily express my total commitment and unreserved surrender to him and his will? Question, what am I holding back for myself, and why? As you think through this, the heart that God longs to see, is there something you know you're holding back from him? Why? Why are you doing that? Would be the question from the burnt offerings. God is pleased with a heart that holds nothing back from him. A heart of consecration totally consumed for him and in his service. God is pleased with a heart that holds nothing back from him. There's another heart aspect that the Lord longs to see in his people, and that's a communing heart. And so that starts with the peace offering. The peace offering is in chapter 3. It shows up again in chapter 7. It was also voluntary and the very best as a rule. It could be a female offering rather than a male. It could have some slight defects if it wasn't for fulfilling a vow to God. A portion was shared not only with the priests, but with the worshiper who offered it. It became a communal meal with God following forgiveness and reconciliation. The peace offering, a communal meal with God, following forgiveness and reconciliation. This is an amazing offering that after I took care of business, God says, let's sit down and put our feet under the table together. Let's share a meal. I want to eat with you. Do you know where the most intimate conversations happen? They don't happen in the living room, do they? They don't usually happen in the room where you've got your television. Where do they happen? 
in the kitchen or around the table while you're sharing a meal. That's where the most intimate conversations happen. Coincidence? I don't think so. God says, I long, after we've taken care of business, I long to sit down and have a meal with you. Let's talk. Let's really talk. What a great picture of our God and how he relates to his people. The significance of a peace offering in those days was, again, it was a fragrant offering, so God is pleased with it. In the ancient Near East, that's what A-N-E stands for, ancient Near East, to eat with others was to make them your friends and allies. Hostility has ended. It would be a joyful expression that the worshiper is at peace and in communion with God as well as with his people. It would also express joy, peace, and gratefulness for special mercies granted. The peace offering was a very significant offering. Wonderful picture of Christ. Of course, Jesus purchased our reconciliation with God through his self-sacrifice. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. Through him we have peace and fellowship with God, Colossians 1.20, and others. 1 John chapter 1, 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. We feast with God on Christ when we're in his word. Remember, he is the lamb of God. He is the fellowship meal, in a sense. And we offer the sacrifice of praise, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, as we meditate on his rich mercies in our lives. We offer the sacrifice of praise. Great picture of Christ in the peace offering. So a few questions. How long has it been since I've offered up heartfelt, spontaneous praise just for the privilege of being in communion with God. Heartfelt, spontaneous praise, not for what he's given me, not for the kindness and goodness and all those things, but just for the privilege of being in communion in fellowship with him. That's a peace offering. Could I see giving thanks at each meal as a picture of a peace offering to God? Could I spend that time focused on God with whoever's around the table with me as well as whoever's around the table with me? What has to happen to my cell phone? Probably has to be put in my pocket or left in another room or left somewhere. But how could I focus on God? How could I focus on others while I'm having this intimate meal with them? Question for communion. Communion will be coming up next weekend. Do I just step through communion these days? Or do I stop to be truly thankful for the unique peace and fellowship Jesus has bought me? Has communion become just something you do? You know the drill. Your mind is disengaged. You take the little cups. Somebody's praying. Somebody's singing. There's a picture. There's something. And you're waiting. And you're looking around. Because you, you see Cody looking around to see if everybody's taken, you know, everybody served, and you're looking, you're going, okay, I think everybody's done, let's, let's get on with it. I've watched you. I know what you do, and I do the same thing. Do I just step through communion mindlessly, or do I really stop to consider? He has made the ultimate peace offering, and because hostilities have ceased, 
The Lord Jesus says, I'd like to put my feet under the table with you and have a little meal. Would you join me right here together? Communion ought to be a rich, special time for us. And so many times it can kind of digress into uh, mechanics. God is pleased with a heart that rejoices in his constant companionship. There's a psalm, a psalm of David. Gosh, is it? Is it 16? Is it 28? I can't remember. Anyway, David, David says, uh, Lord, my heart has heard you cry out to me. Come and talk with me. I am coming. Is that amazing? God is pleased with a heart that rejoices in his constant companionship. There's one more aspect that the Lord longs to see in his people as taught through these sacrifices, and that's a cleansed heart. Chapter 4 and chapter 6, we hit on the sin offering. That is not voluntary. The others have been voluntary. This is not voluntary. It's for, for purifying or disinfecting. It's for unintentional or overlooked sins. Uh-oh. What's not listed? <laughs> what is there no sacrifice for? An intentional sin. Sometimes in the Bible it's called a high-handed sin because it's us doing this to God, high-handed. I shake my fist in his face and I say, I know what your word says. I don't care. This is what I'm going to do. There was no sacrifice for that in the Old Testament except for the mercy of God. These sin offerings are for unintentional or overlooked sins. When the sinner, did you, when you read these, did you go, wow, that's, oof. <laughs> when the sinner commits these sins, he is guilty. When he becomes aware of it, what's he supposed to do? <laughs> Bring an offering. Did you know you could be guilty without even knowing what you're doing? Because God is completely pure and holy. Probably true today too, isn't it? Sin broke fellowship with God. Not relationship. Fellowship with God. Sin brought pollution into the camp, defiling the tabernacle of God as well as his land. Why did he kick out the Canaanites when he was bringing his people into the promised land? Do you remember back from Genesis? I'm going to wait 400 years. You're in Egypt. Why? Because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. Remember him saying that? Why is he kicking these people out of the land who are there before his people? Because they've defiled his land. So he sends his people in there to say, you're going to be stewards and caretakers of my land the way it's supposed to be cared and taken care of. Sin broke fellowship. Sin brought pollution into the camp. What happens if sin comes into the camp? What happens if the, if the tabernacle is defiled? What happens if the land is defiled? What does God do? He's not happy. And he may begin by removing himself from the land because he, he can't be there anymore because the people are too sinful and they won't do what he's told them to do to cleanse and to disinfect, so to speak. 
He may kick them out of the land. Oh yeah, he does that. (laughs) He may turn his tabernacle over or his temple over and have it destroyed because he'd rather have a destroyed temple than one that doesn't honor him. Oh yeah, he does all that too. All of these things to teach his people and to remind us of who he is and how holy he is. A citizen would bring his or her, and it was usually brought by the head of the household, so it was brought by the the husband, the father. A citizen would bring his sacrifice on on his behalf or behalf of his family to the brazen altar in the courtyard. So remember in the tabernacle, there's the courtyard, and then I go a little further, and I'm in the holy place, and then I go the furthest in, and I'm in the holy of holies. So out here in the courtyard where the brazen altar is, that's where a normal citizen would have brought his sacrifice. Now, if it's a national sin or the high priest sins, they have to go into the holy place. And he has to sprinkle the blood on the altar of incense right there at the curtain into the most holy place. I mean, you've had to move further in. Why? Because your sin is worse. It's uh, because of your status and your responsibility You've, you've done a worse thing than the average citizen. Everyone, my goodness, everyone wants to be a leader. Just read this stuff. <laughs> you think uh, what the high priest had to bring for his sin is the same thing the nation had to bring if they sinned. The high priest's sin is equal to the sin of the entire nation. That's how serious the high priest's sinning was to God. This idea of status and responsibility in God's economy, leaders are held. What, think of Moses, right? Are you kidding me? What did Moses do? He whacked the rock twice. One time, bummer, dude, you can't go in. Why? Because of your status and your responsibility. Leadership certainly has its privileges, so to speak, but it also has its responsibilities. And they are not to be taken lightly. The... the, uh, the year of sin, so the Day of Atonement, we'll get to later on in the book. In the, in the Day of Atonement, one day a year, they've charged up the whole nation's sin on their sin credit card, and the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies with blood and with smoke and stuff, and he's hoping, God says, I'll come back next year. Charge it up for another year. I'll come back. In the event he doesn't, he decides to collect the debt. Remember we talked about that's why the high priest probably had a rope around his legs. So they could drag him out because he's going to be dead. So there was always a question on the Day of Atonement. Are we going to get another year? That sin had to be uh, covered in the Holy of Holies once a year. So different Responsibility, different status, different day, different stuff had different requirements to how to handle these different sins. But all of them, sin broke fellowship with God and it brought pollution into the camp. That was not good. So the sin offering was to take care of that. There was also a trespass offering or a guilt offering, depending on your translation, It's also not voluntary, and it's for restitution and or satisfaction. You think of the trespass offering or the guilt offering as it's focusing on the damage done by sin. If you want to think of it this way, the sin offering is, I'm a sinner. The trespass offering is because of the sins I committed, because I'm a sinner. So one is, I'm a sinner. The other is, this is the stuff I, these are the sins I commit because I'm a sinner. So I have to bring a sin offering, and I need, or I need to bring a sin offering, and I probably need to bring a trespass offering because it's focused on the damage that I did, 
And that requires repentance and restitution. Repentance means if I'm going this way, I have to go 180 degrees in the other, in the other way. Sin is seen as a debt to be repaid. Remorse should be the attitude. True remorse, not, uh, uh, not faking it. There ought to be responsibility leading to confession. And then there ought to be restitution. And that was restoration plus a fine, usually 20%. There's the debt. So I would bring a sin offering, and I would likely also bring a trespass offering, because if I cheated someone in business, let's say I charged them 100 bucks instead of 10 bucks, and that becomes known, I've got to pay $90 plus 20% back to that person. What would I need to do? In, in repentance, I would take responsibility, and I would go to that person, and I would say, I cheated you out of $90. And so here's, my, here's the $90, and then here's 20% on top of that. And then I got to go do these sacrifices. <laughs> and by the way, who, who did the cutting on the sacrifices? You did. The priest was there to catch the blood in a bowl. You were the one who executed the animal. You'd place your hand on its head, thus transferring your guilt or whatever to that animal, life for life. You would think, wouldn't you, Gosh, that would make them stop and think before they did it the next time. Wouldn't you think that? I'd think that. Guess what? They didn't think that. <laughs> it didn't stop them. In the same way, it wouldn't stop us. You just get desensitized to it after a while. So there's a sin offering. There's a trespass offering. There's significance they're required. They are not fragrant offerings because God is not pleased with these. He demands these, but he's not pleased with these. We're taught in here sin pollutes more than just the one who sins. This idea we have, particularly in this country, you know, my sin only hurts me. Wrong. Sin never only hurts you. Sin always involves other people, including God. Sin pollutes more than just the one who sins. Sin hurts God and hurts others. Sin is costly to commit and costly to cleanse. Sin requires true repentance before restoration. The sinner's remorse, the sinner's responsibility in confession, and the sinner's restitution. There has to be a proper heart orientation along with the physical sacrifice. Wonderful pictures of Christ, which you could anticipate. Christ is our sin offering, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, and 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He died outside the camp. Remember the sin offering? The fat was burned on the altar. Remember that? Where do they take the rest of it? Outside the camp. And that's where the rest of it got burnt up because that's where you put a sin offering. You had to put it outside the camp. Our Lord was sacrificed in that sense outside the camp. The writer to the Hebrews reminds us. So perfect a sin offering. It was done outside the camp. That's in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 10 through 13. He died to pay our debt, Romans 6, 23, and he paid it in full. Hebrews 10, 14, for by that one offering, he perfected forever all those whom he is making holy. His sin sacrifice was so powerful, so efficacious, 
that it cleansed us and changed us from the inside out forever. For by that one offering, he, who? He perfected, how long? Forever, all those whom he is in the process of making holy. He is in the process of making us holy. But he's already perfected us forever in his accounting book. He's just walking us toward what he's already done. Amazing pictures of Christ in the sacrifices. Our cleansed hearts, someone has said this, the heart of our problem with God is a problem of our heart. Would I characterize my sins as done in ignorance or done with eyes wide open? Or even high-handed sins? I know what's right, but I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I know God will forgive me. Have I thanked God lately for the perfect sin offering of Jesus whose blood has removed my guilt as far as the east is from the west? Have I just thanked him for that recently? Have I thanked God lately for his son's perfect trespass offering that marked the damage and debt of my account paid in full forever? Whatever damage I did by my sins of commission or omission, there was a debt to be paid. That debt has been paid in full and I owe not one more penny because it has been stamped in blood, paid in full. Never to be revisited. When was the last time you thanked God? Just thanked him for that, for what Jesus has done and who Jesus is to do that for us. What is God teaching his people through the sacrifices? He's teaching them about cleansing because if I were going to approach God, I would have to go in the reverse order. The reverse order is first I have to be cleansed. So he wants a heart that doesn't desire to be polluted with sin but instead longs to be holy. He would want communion with me. Once we've taken care of the cleansing, we can have communion together. He's pleased with a heart that rejoices in his constant companionship. And then consecration, if I'm in communion with him, and I'm beginning to learn of his son Jesus, and see how his son surrendered and led his life, I want to do the same. And so that should lead me to a state of not just cleansing and communion, but consecration. He is pleased with a heart that holds nothing back from him. None of this is what you can do in the, your own power. It is only the power of the Holy Spirit of God in you who can do this. Cleansing. Tonight, does your heart need to be cleansed from something? Take it to the Lord tonight. Don't let one more hour go by. Take care of business because fellowship is broken between the two of you. Not relationship, but your fellowship. You long to have a close, intimate relationship with him and he with you, but there's something standing in between you. And you need to take care of it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Huh, look, cleansing. <laughs> he says, Get, I want you cleansed for your own good, but also because I long to be with you and I long to sit down and have a meal in the kitchen with you. Communion, he's pleased with a heart that rejoices in his constant companionship. Are you enticed 
and enthralled by all the things he gives you. Wonderful. Are you enticed and enthralled by him? And this, he says to his disciples in John 17, and this is eternal life that you know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. That is eternal life, to know God. Not to all of his goodies, to know him. Communion. He's pleased with a heart that rejoices in his constant companionship. How long has it been since you've really been in communion with the Lord? Is life too busy? How are you going to slow down starting tomorrow? How are you going to spend that time? How are you going to recapture that communion time with him? It's so important to our lives. It's so easy for us to let it drift off here. Grab it and pull it back. And consecration. He's pleased with a heart that holds nothing back from him. I am challenged by the priests morning and evening offering up a burnt sacrifice a continual burnt offering to God. Is that what my life looks like? Is that what your life looks like? A continual burnt offering to him. Lord, you made me. You redeemed me. You gifted me. You gave me these great circumstances and an amazing church in a wonderful city. Whatever you want to do with me, do it. Do it. I am yours. Wholly consumed by and in your service. Would you be willing to say that to him this week? Would that be scary? He is pleased with a heart that holds nothing back from him. For next week, read Leviticus 8 through 10. Much easier reading. 8, 9, and 10. Three short chapters. We'll talk some more about the priests next week. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, These are sacrifices that your people at one time had to bring. But thanks to the Lord Jesus, every one of these sacrifices is finished, complete, Yes and amen, it is done and does not have to be repeated. Thanks be to the Lord Jesus. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Thank you for the Lord Jesus and what he has done for us. Help us to continue to appreciate and to love and pursue him as a result. We love you. Thank you for the cleansing that we have through the shed blood of Christ. Thank you for the communion that we have with him and with each other through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And thank you for the consecration that you continue to draw us and woo us uh, towards Christ who gave himself fully and completely and held nothing back. Thank you for your long suffering with us, for understanding when we do hold back, you uh, encourage us always onward and to continue to give ourselves more and more into your service. We love you and we thank you for your patience and your tenderness with us. We love you and I pray for your richest blessing and favor on my brothers and sisters this week. And we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen.